Hey, Pastor Dave here. We began our work in Haiti in 2011, shortly after the earthquake happened. And so we've been there now 11 years. It's the largest mission that we support and one of only two overseas missions. We have a partner church called the Premier Source Christian Church. Pastor Nicholas is our pastor there and he's doing a great job uh, leading the team. And we also have a school. We started a school in 2011 and uh, we now have over 250 students. And one of the things we try to do in addition to giving them an education, we also try to increase their living conditions. Not too long ago, a few years, we drilled a well and we have money to drill another well as soon as we can get back over there. Check out some of these pictures from our most recent trip, which was last September of 2021. If you're wondering how you can help with this mission, here are a few ways. Number one, put them on your prayer list. Put Pastor Nicholas and our school and the entire village of Premier Source, which is outside a place called Jeremy, put it on your prayer list. And just when you remember, pray for them, pray for their conditions and pray for the people there. Many of the children, young and old, die from stomach diseases or something that uh, that we could treat easily here so pray for them secondly sponsor a child as I said we have over 250 children and we depend upon giving of our church and some friends of our church and the mission to support this mission and we send money every month to pay teachers to provide food and medical care uh, for our school so pray for them Sponsor a child at $25 a month or more if you'd like, less if you'd like. Any amount helps. And lastly, when you're able and when we feel like it's safe, go on a trip with us. I promise it'll change your life. If you have any questions or want more information about our mission work in Haiti, we call it Gateway Mission Haiti, check out our website. There's a link there under locations where you can find out all you want to know. Good morning. My name is Beth Sturgill and I'm a member of the Haiti Oversight Team which Pastor Dave was just talking about. Um, as Dave said in the video, Haiti is the largest mission of our two overseas missions that we sponsor. 
But it's more than just a mission to us. It's a partnership. It's a partnership in that we go on short-term trips, but it's a long-term relationship. We have had 137 people, mostly from our church, go on mission trips to Haiti. That's 137 American lives changed and tremendous amounts of relationships built with the people in the village of Premier Source. If you've been on one of those mission trips, raise your hand. I see several of you out there. Thank you for that. As you can see on the screen, we have a, a video, oh, there, there, there they are. We have a picture of our ninth grade graduates this year. These kids graduated as sixth graders and originally that was as far as our school was going to go. But Pastor Nicholas came to us and said, could we please extend it to ninth grade? And so we did because we know the value of education for those children. It costs us a little more each month, but it's well, well worth it in the end. After ninth grade, they can decide whether they're going to continue their education in Jeremy or go on to get a vocational trade. If you would like to join Gateway in making a difference in the lives of these children in the village of Premier Source, as Pastor Dave mentioned, there are three ways you can do that. First and foremost, pray. Pray for our school, pray for our children and their families. Pray for the staff, pray for Pastor Nicholas and all of the village. Secondly, you can become a sponsor. Your sponsorship money goes directly to the mission. It helps pay for the children to get two meals a day. It pays for their uniforms, their books, their school materials. It pays the teacher's salaries, the cooks, the wash ladies, all of those things. It also helps pay for a school nurse who gives the children much medical attention that they need. Finally, you can join our Gateway Mission Haiti Facebook page. Just get on there and send a re friend request and you'll be able to keep up on everything that's going on over there in Premier Source. Also, check out our page on the Gateway Church main page. If you would like to sponsor a child after today's service, I'll be at a table out there. Come on out if you have any questions about the mission or if you feel led in your heart to sponsor a child. We've got pictures and papers that you can sign up. And we ask that you help join us in this endeavor as we spread the love of Jesus Christ across the world. Thank you. good. Thank you, Beth. Great job. Beth's been to Haiti 
a lot of times. Philbin, you've been there a lot too, haven't you? We'd love to take you on a trip once it's safe. It is life-changing. I have another little bit of information to share with you, kind of some uh, all-church information. Um, before I get started into the sermon, you might remember uh, several weeks ago, John Tracy, who's here in this service, our executive minister, along with Shane Armstrong, our representative from Christian Financial Resources, they're the organization from whom we borrowed money in order to, um, to buy and renovate our Taze Valley campus, as well as wrap up some debt from here. And uh, so they're our, our financial partners. And they were here and they told us that one of the deals that we have with them is that if we, you know, not only are they a lending institution, but uh, they are an investment institution, and you can put savings there. For instance, I have a savings account with them. I can access the money just like at my bank, but instead of earning .000% on my money at the bank, I earned better than that. Uh, with my ready access account with CFR. Anyway, uh, so the deal was if we get, if our church, and they make this deal with anybody, deposits $1 million collectively in some kind of a savings or investment vehicle, $1 million and the rate comes down by a quarter percent. Now that doesn't sound like a lot of percent there, but a quarter percent makes a lot of money when you're talking about $2.7 million dollars which was our original debt, 2.7. But I'm happy to tell you that in five years, we're down to 1.7. We've paid off a million bucks in five years. And thank you for that. So I'm also happy to say that at the 1st of March, we were $250,000 short of our $1 million goal, which I thought we would, I didn't know if we'd ever reach it. I mean, I I don't know if people will do this or whatever. I wasn't pushing it, anything like that. Uh, But maybe I should have a little bit. But since the 1st of March, now it's mid-May, and we have surpassed the goal of a million dollars. So in our church, uh, all campuses, people like you have put their savings uh, or some kind of investment account with Christian Financial Resources, and that was a decision everybody made. So we're getting a lower percent, and that's going to save us thousands and thousands of dollars if you're familiar with commercial loans on, uh, on, on the Lord's money. So thank you for that, if that's one of you, if you did that. And uh, regardless, thank you if you're a financial partner with our church. That means you're a, you're a giver, and we can't do what we do without you. Whether you put drop money in an offering plate on the weekends, or if you use text to give, or you might have it set up from the website where it gives automatically, or you do it every week. However you do that, thank you for your financial partnership with our church. We could not be the church we are and do what we do without each one of you and all of our campuses. So thank you so much. It's not only uh, something that's good to do, it's a part of our worship as Christians to give to the Lord, to give to the Lord, to tithe. Okay, so enough of that. Let's hustle on. Steve put me late with this technology problem, so um, uh, bear with us, all right? Family life. We're in the sermon four of five. Next week, we're going to wrap it up, and we've established that if we want a fruitful and blessed family, then that family, the foundation of it, is a biblical 
traditional marriage. Now, that's what we've established. That's what the Bible teaches. A mom and a dad give, give the best opportunity for a family to be fruitful and blessed in the eyes of the Lord. And that marriage, we've said, has to be, if it wants to have the best opportunity to be fruitful and blessed in the eyes of God, built on the foundation of God's Word. That is what we believe. That's what this series has been about. It will impact uh, that marriage based on the Word of God will impact everything you do in your family. It'll impact how you spend your money, how you save your money, how you invest your money. It'll impact what you do on Sunday mornings. It'll impact your weekends. It'll impact your free time. It'll impact your goals. It'll impact your education. All that stuff will be impacted because that marriage is a traditional biblical marriage based on the Word of God. Last week, we talked about conflict. We're all going to have it, but there's a way to deal with it. Today, I'm going to talk about a, a topic that we should think about. I know we don't often think about it until we get older or until we read an obituary, but we should think about this topic, and it's the topic of your legacy. This is a family matter, your legacy. We're all leaving a legacy. Uh, and you might think, no, I'm going to wait and do that later. No, this is not something you do later. This is something you're doing right now. You're building your legacy right now. Now, again, I'm not talking just about your finances because your leg legacy is so much bigger than your finances. I, I admit, you should, you should pay off your debt before you die. Wouldn't that be a great goal? You should leave your children with something, your grandchildren. But don't forget what it, Solomon said. In Ecclesiastes 2.21, he said, Sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not work for it. He said, this is evil. And so I think there's biblical precedence here for you grandparents to spend a little bit of that inheritance. Can I get an amen? Now, I'm not saying go buy a big camper or a farm or something, but look, you leave your kids too much money, they're just going to fight over it, and it could ruin them. There's something better than that. There's something bigger than that. I don't know if you've thought about your legacy I don't know if you've thought about what you're going to leave behind when you go, but I guarantee you as you get older, you will think about it. You'll think about what your kids and their kids think about you. And what is it of value that will, that will surpass the generations, that will go down through the bloodline? It's not some kind of a Downton Abbey house or a family name necessarily, but it's something more than that, isn't it? It reminds me of the, of the poet who wrote, only one life will soon be passed, and only what's done for Christ will last. And we need to think about that. We want to contribute to our family in a way that will last for generations. We want to put our stamp on the future. We want to have some influence so that they remember us fondly when we're gone. So what can you build and leave behind that will truly impact them? To answer our question, I want to look real quickly at the story, part of the story of the patriarchs. You know, the patriarchs in the book of Genesis is where you find their story. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Jacob's sons were also called patriarchs. 
And the one we're going to talk about today is a, a little bit of a legacy, or really a whole lot of a legacy, that Joseph, you remember Joseph? His story takes up a large section of the book of Genesis, more so than anybody else's. Hebrews 11.2 says, By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his money. Is that what it says? No. Concerning his property. No, concerning his bones. Isn't that weird? Isn't that weird that Joseph, at the end of his life, would give some direction concerning his bones? That's an interesting part of his story. Now, Joseph, you remember his story. He overcame a lot of adversity, a lot of it from his own family, his jealous brothers. To get to a position in the Egyptian empire where he could save his father's family from extreme famine and starvation. Stephen, the first Christian martyr, when he was preaching his sermon in Acts chapter 7 before they killed him for it, he said this, He said, and the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. I like that. God was with him and rescued him. And you remember the rest of the story when those uh, jealous brothers came down to Egypt looking for food they discover that the very brother they were jealous of and lied to their father about and sold into slavery, he was the one in charge of all the food distribution in Egypt. In fact, he was second in command in Egypt only to Pharaoh himself. And when he could have had revenge on his brothers for putting him through so much adversity, you remember that he didn't. He had mercy. In fact, in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, he told them when he finally revealed himself to them, he said, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And so on down a couple verses, we read this. So Joseph remained in Egypt. He and his father's house, Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's Children of the third generation, the children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Now, Joseph's life story is his legacy, his his adversity, his big dreams. Remember, Joseph was called the dreamer, dreaming all these big dreams about he and his mother and father, and they were all going to bow down to him, and the brothers didn't like that. That's part of his legacy, his integrity. Remember when Mrs. Pot of Fire tried to seduce him. That's part of his legacy and his commitment to God in the darkest of places like that Egyptian prison where if 
if there was a time for him to throw in the towel on God, that would have been it. Because how could I be so far away from my homeland? Nobody knows I'm here. Nobody knows I'm alive. And here I am, falsely accused, sitting in a prison. Perhaps I'll rot here. But he stayed committed to the Lord, didn't he? And it's such a great story of a, of a legacy. But I want you to focus in now on his last words. He said, God will surely visit you. That's the first one I want to talk about. And you shall carry up my bones from here. In these two phrases, this one sentence, I think there are two critical elements of a legacy that you and I need to think about for our children and grandchildren and their children and grandchildren. And here's the first one, the promise of God's presence. And we don't know what Joseph knew about the future of the Israelite people. We don't know if God gave him a premonition. We know that he could interpret dreams and kind of forecast or predict the future by God's help. We don't know if he got some kind of a vision of what was going to happen after he died to his people and and then after that. But we do know that Joseph was very close to God and, and they had a God who would never leave them or forsake them, come what may. And he also knew, I believe, that Egypt wouldn't be their resting place, their home forever. So the time came when Joseph and all his brothers, you know, they they lived very well because they were the family of Joseph, and they got some of the best land in Egypt, and they prospered there. We turn the page to the book of Exodus. Joseph died, all his brothers, you know, that next generation from Jacob, they all died, but his family continued to prosper and multiply. The Bible says in Exodus, the first few verses of Exodus, the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. But I want you to listen to the next next verse. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. So much for the fleeting enjoyment of fame not only did this pharaoh not know joseph he didn't care about joseph he didn't care about joseph's family and he didn't care about giving them the finest or the choicest areas to live in what he was concerned about was his people the egyptian people and these people looked like a threat because they were populating like rabbits and there was more of them increasingly in places than there were egyptians so you remember what happened. The Pharaoh said, look, we got, we got to be hard on them. We cannot, we cannot allow them to continue to increase and multiply and hold these positions of power in our land for fear that they'll get so big that they'll join our enemies and fight against us and escape from us. Let's make them work. And that make them work became let's make them slaves And so the Israelites, the Hebrew people, became the the workforce in the industrial engine of the Egyptian empire. In fact, I think there are many people who believe that these Hebrew people who were, they were builders, they were making things, you know, they, they were, the Israelite people were known for being hard workers and good workers. They probably had a hand in some of the great pyramids of Egypt, literally a hand. And so their life went from being easy when Joseph was alive and that Pharaoh to when the new Pharaoh came, now it was a little bit harder 
and it was going to get harder and harder and harder. I don't know if Joseph knew that, but when he said, God will surely visit you, I think this reminded them that God has not left us. He's not forsaking us. Life might be hard. Our grandfathers, our grandparents and great-grandparents, they had it good, but here we are mixing mortar with less and less straw. The Egyptian people were so afraid of them that by the time of Moses, 400 years later, they were resorting to what we could call post-birth abortion. They were told, the midwife were told, look, before that baby uh, is given to its mother, if it's a boy, you throw it into the river and kill it. We got to decrease the population of these people. Life was hard for the Hebrews, and it got worse. But Joseph's bones were a constant reminder. Remember what Joseph said, God will surely visit us. It would be great if we could tell our kids, hey, you're going to have it made. You're not going to have any problems. It'd be nice if we could tell our grandkids, oh, you're, you're going to be fine. There's not going to be anybody in your schools to be afraid of. You're going to be taught the truth. You're going to learn how to live an honest life. But I don't know anybody in here that can honestly say that to their kids and grandkids today. In fact, I'm almost fearful, aren't you? I'm fearful of what my grandchildren might learn, not just in school, in public school, but what they might learn in the marketplace out there from their friends or what they might learn from, uh, you know, other adults that seem to come across as being influential or leaders like professors or uh, leaders of state, leaders of the nation. That they might hear something and then say, well, everything I've been taught is a lie. Everything I've been taught now from the Bible is wrong. It's narrow-minded. It's old-fashioned. It's bigoted. It's arrogant. And, that, you know, that's what our kids are learning is that if you, if you grew up in traditional America with the Bible as your foundation and going to church was the right thing to do and being part of the fellowship of the faith was the right thing to do and living according to the Bible, what our young people are being told today is that, no, that's out of date. That's out of date. Let me tell you something. If you haven't already figured this out, but if you believe in the Bible and you want to live your life according to the Bible, you are an enemy of the enemy. <laughs> the devil, and everybody who works for him. I don't think we can tell our kids that life's going to be easy, that uh, you're going to have an easy time. I don't think we can tell them, hey, church is always going to be important to you, and uh, living by biblical values is going to be important. I believe my view of the end of time is that as we get closer to the end, evil is on the rise, and the restraints of evil are being removed. What is a restraint of evil? Well, the church is one restraint of evil. People living with biblical values. As we permeate our culture and society, we take our values with us. But once we're relegated to the side and considered an enemy of, of progress, I was looking for that word last service, an enemy of progress, an enemy of what's right and good for our country. Once we're relegated and, and they convince the culture that we're a danger, 
we're a danger to progress, we're a danger to society, then that kind of, that kind of mutes our voice. And we don't have the influence anymore. So I'd like to be able to say to my children and grandchildren, don't worry, you're going to be able to live your faith easily. And they might live a faith, but it won't be the faith of the Bible. But you and I can do something about that. You know, when my grandparents passed away, my grandfather first, and they're the ones who influenced me more than anybody, they didn't leave any money. They didn't leave any money for us to fight over or uh, to, to fuss about. In fact, my grandparents, my mother's parents, they lived on less than $500 a month. Less than $500 a month. Can you believe that? Now, my mother and her sisters, I know, help them out a lot. But they, they, were, they were not people of means by any stretch of the imagination. But they lacked for nothing. And so when they died, they didn't leave us really anything except their possessions. And they weren't worth much. But they left us a faith. They left us values. And they left us a priority of the Lord in our lives. And that's worth more than anything else. And listen, you, you may go bankrupt before it's all over with. You, you, may, you may throw in the towel on your investing. I don't know. It may throw the towel in on you. But that doesn't mean you can't leave your kids something of greater value. And the promise that no matter what happens to you, God is going to be with you is that great promise. The Israelites didn't embalm their deceased, but the Egyptians did. The Egyptians mummified their deceased. And uh, for fear of being a little bit too graphic, let me tell you how this happened, and you can talk about it later with uh, your kids uh, if they're in here. Uh, they would take a hook and pull the brain out and throw it away because they didn't figure the brain was good for anything anyway. I realize that's the case for a lot of people living in our world today. Using special processes, they would take out all the internal organs. Mummification means to dry to dry out and to wrap. And so they would put all these organs in a jar and then they would put the heart back in, the chest cavity, because that's where they believed all of life was, the heart, thought, intelligence, emotion, everything. They put this back in there. Then they wrapped the body. And we're told that, that the mummification process took 40 days, you know, to dry that body out real good and wrap it up. Joseph had his father Jacob's body mummified. Joseph's wife was an Egyptian. Asenath was her name. She was the daughter of the priest of On. So this would have all been natural to her and to her family. But Joseph said, look, don't leave my bones here. Now we might wonder, why didn't Joseph command that his bones be taken up? When his father Jacob died, immediately they, they mummified his body. They went through the process. This is Joseph. Second in command, his father died. Let's pay him homage. But then they took his body up to the same cave, the cave of Machpelah, where Abraham was buried, where Isaac was buried, and now Jacob was buried there. Why didn't Joseph say, hey, as soon as I die, gather me up and take me up to where our grandparents are buried? I'll tell you why. Because he was a, natural, a national hero. Joseph saved Egypt. 
Remember, we don't kind of get the full extent of this, but Joseph saved the nation of Egypt, and not only that nation, but other nations. And the Bible says in 41:57 of Genesis, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe all over the earth. So I don't think the Egyptians would have let his body go. It was like a national monument. It's like it's going to lie in state, and it's going to be idolized and worshipped by the Egyptian people. And so that's why it sat there for 400 years, this body sat in this coffin. And so when Joseph said, God's going to visit you, what he was saying was, times are going to get tough, but don't, don't worry, God is going to be with you. He's going to be with you. And those people in the latter stages of that 400-year slavery would have needed that. But the second thing he was saying here in this legacy was, this is not our final resting place. We have the hope of heaven. Now, Joseph and the Hebrew people didn't have the view of the afterlife like you and I have. They didn't have the New Testament. They didn't have Jesus All they knew about was a place called Sheol, but what Joseph was thinking, look, I need to make it to the promised land. I need to get there. I need to get to the promised land, and you're not going to be here forever, and when you go, you take me with you, and that's a legacy I want to leave my kids and my grandkids. I want them to hope for heaven in their life. I want them to live their life in such a way and make those choices that will make sure their final destination is secure and sure. I want to see them again, don't you? And don't you have loved ones who are already gone? Grandparents, maybe parents, some of you, maybe a spouse, perhaps a child that you've, in a sense, sent on to be with the Lord, and you'd like to gather there one day. That's the great hope of heaven, is that this is not it. This is not the end of it, that death is not a a resting point, it's a doorway through which we enter into eternity and for believers into the presence of God. And all of our loved ones, you know, for millennia, I think we'll just be getting to know people, ancestors who lived 100, 200, 300 years ago. Eventually, we'll all get up to Adam and Eve. Well, they were all brothers and sisters. But we have this hope, and we want our kids to know there's more to life than just this life. You know, Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, their mother was Egyptian. Wonder why they didn't choose, instead of leaving with the Hebrew people, now they probably weren't alive, of course, but their family, but during their lifetime, wonder why they didn't say, you know what, you Hebrew people, that's all good, but we're going to live as Egyptians because they're the reigning empire in the world. You know why I think? Because of their father's faith and his love for his father and his father and his father and his love for his people. I think they knew how much their dad loved God. Wouldn't that make a difference in your kid's life? If your love for God was so strong that your kids said, you know what, I'm not leaving this place. I'm not leaving this church. Or, uh, you know, when I say church here, I mean capital C. I don't, I'm not saying you have to come here to make it to heaven by any means, but, I, but I'm not leaving my faith. How about saying it that way? I'm not leaving my faith because my father loved the Lord and my mother loved the Lord. My grandparents loved the Lord and I couldn't imagine stepping out of that. I'm going to love the Lord as well. 
Reminds me of what the Bible says about Moses in Hebrews, that he chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. When Joseph heard that his father was about to die, Jacob, he took his boys to be blessed by Jacob. And so he took the boys in there and There was Ephraim and Manasseh, and the Bible says that Joseph placed them carefully where the oldest one would get the main blessing and the younger one would get the other blessing. But I don't know if you remember this story. When they got there, Jacob crossed his hands, and his right hand, the main blessing, fell to the younger one in his left hand. And Joseph said, no, Dad, that's not right. And Jacob said, yes, it is right, because this is who God is. God can work with the least. He can work with the youngest. He can work with the down and out. And this is how the blessing is going to flow. And so Jacob told Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. You know, maybe Joseph wasn't thinking just about the destination. Maybe he was thinking about the journey. You know, I can imagine when somebody's saying, Go in there and get your granddaddy's bones. <laughs> we got to take them with us. That would have been at the front of the procession, perhaps. You ever think they thought of ditching Joseph into a canyon. I mean, come on, this guy, this is 400 years ago. We're carrying his coffin through the wilderness, wandering for 40 years. We're carrying his bones. But Exodus chapter 3, I'm on my last page here. Exodus chapter 3, we read, but God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea, and the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Look at verse 19 of Exodus. This is Exodus 13. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. So what happened to Joseph's bones? As they were journeying to the promised land, and it was a constant reminder that God is with us, he's visiting us. Joshua 24, as for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them in Shechem, and the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money, it became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. So that's what happened to Joseph's bones. But Joseph made a strategic move there to make sure he left a legacy. I'm sorry, when I hear rain on a rooftop, I get sleepy. I know i got to hurry. I'm going to lose some of us. This is the legacy we want to live, isn't, leave, isn't it? That God's going to be with you. You walk with the Lord. You walk with the Lord in this life. I'm going to show you how to do it. Watch me. And I'm going to teach you how to do it. Listen. And then one day I'm going to be gone and I'm going to expect you to do it. And where I'm going, he went. And I want you to meet me again. Oh, I can imagine, you know. I never saw my grandfather with two arms. He had his arm chopped off when he was a young man. Never saw him with two arms. It was his left arm. But I imagine one day when we enter into eternity, I'll see two arms spread out. And I'll give a quick hug and thanks because we'll have a thousand years times a thousand to spend. But I want to say, Papa. I want to see Jesus. He's the reason we're able to be here today. That's the legacy. Let's pray. God, thank you for your goodness and grace. Thank you, God, so much.
for the opportunity we have to teach and to model a legacy of faith. And if it takes leaving something that we have, maybe a Bible, maybe a necklace, maybe a brooch, maybe a, a, a tool or a piece of equipment or a picture, or even our bones. If it takes a headstone to remind our children and grandchildren and their children and grandchildren to walk with you, Lord, then let it be so. But let us walk with you in this life. That's my prayer in Jesus' name. Let's stand and thank God for what we have.